Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Tippin, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Kate Lebo about her newest book, The Book of Difficult Fruit, Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes, published 2021 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Kate Lebo is author of the chapbook Seven Prayers to Kathy McMorris Rogers and editor of the anthology Pie and Whiskey, Writers Under the Influence of Butter and Booze, which she edited with Samuel Ligon. Kate is also author of Pie School, Lessons in Fruit, Flour, and Butter, and the poetry ephemera recipe collection A Commonplace Book of Pie. Through the Arts Heritage Apprenticeship Program from the Washington Center for Cultural Traditions, she's an apprentice cheesemaker to Laura Lee Misterly of Quillisasket Farm, which Kate taught me to say, and I think I did okay. Welcome to the podcast, Kate. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thanks so much for having me, Carrie. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I wanted to start out by saying just how much I really enjoyed the book. Uh, at about 10 pages in, I already had a list of people that I knew would get this book. They would get it. Uh, my mother-in-law, Pam, who knows the name of every plant in West Texas. Um, her mother, who taught her. My friend, Jill, who's a forager and a fiction writer. Uh, I really thought of people who would be captured by both the delightful nerdiness of it, <laughs> but also uh, the loveliness of the prose and the careful craft of the narrative. Uh, it really is a lovely book. Congratulations. Thank you so much. And I love that you talk about somebody getting it too. I think that yeah. this combination of, um, I guess, trying to make literary work that's also culinary um, can be confusing to some some new audiences. Um, and yes, as I, indeed. Yeah. And as I've gone around with some of my other books, I always know when people get it. <laughs> well, like, I'm definitely well, going to ask you about it. those <laughs> genre bending moments in just uh-huh. a minute. Uh, but first, tell us a little about your academic and professional background. What, how did you get interested in writing about food, especially pie and fruit? Sure. So I, my, my academic background is in poetry. I have an MFA in poetry. I studied writing. Um, I worked uh, for um, creative writing nonprofits and arts nonprofits uh, before I started writing full time. Um, and I got into writing about food in part as a break from the seriousness with which I was taking my poetry studies. I mean, I so desperately wanted to write, you know, an earth shattering poem that it became impossible to write anything at all. Um, And that was, um, gosh, I think that was 2010, which was a prime year for the food blog, right? Um, So I actually started food writing in in part because I had a food blog and I was really grooving on um, the audience interaction that I could get from publishing any kind of story about pie. Um, That is one of the things that drew me into pie is I was writing about all sorts of stuff, all sorts of foods. Um, But whenever I wrote about pie, there was a special excitement 
Um, and I dug that excitement just as a human who likes to have people excited about whatever they're writing about. But then also just that seemed like a sign of, oh, there's something special there. It's not, you know, just the sugar. Um, it's not just the butter, though I'm sure those things are exciting to people. It's it's something else. Um, it's, it's the expectations people bring to pie. It's stories about pie. It's a family tradition. It's, you know, mythology, all that. So that kind of, that started taking me down that road. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite uh, Zoom icebreaker questions is cake or pie. I just say cake or pie. And then we divide the Zoom room in half, cake people and pie people. I'm a pie person. Right. And it's valuable to have these fights that are not really fights. Yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, so where did the idea for difficult fruit itself begin? Uh, you know, it began from multiple different places. One, In one way, it began, you know, way back when I was starting to write Commonplace Book of Pie, and I was really interested in, you know, what would happen within a text if I was combining lots of different types of writing within it. That book has poems, that book has illustrations by Jessica Bonin, that book has ephemera um, and recipes. And, and I loved kind of, I love the interaction of all those different um, ways of writing and ways of knowing. Um, and I also loved how impossible it was to figure out where to put it in a bookstore. Um, it, it, I wanted to um, mimic as much as possible the feeling that I would get when I go into my favorite used bookstores and I come upon kind of a book as an artifact, not the book that I've been told I'm supposed to read, but the book next to that I've never heard of before, um, you know, that that ended up there because some somebody died and, you know, their kid donated their collection to that store, that sort of thing. I was hoping to kind of um, not only capture the strangeness of, of encounters with, uh, of a book's encounter with a reader like that, but the, um, the privacy, the um, kind of quiet relationship between a writer and a reader um, when, when at least that I would have when I would discover books that way. Um, so, so the book of difficult fruit came in part actually from anxiety that I was having at the time about, you know, having written two books about pie, would anyone ever take me seriously as a quote unquote real writer? Um, people were very easily able to swallow the writing about pie. Haha. Um, but I think it was, it was really hard to, for me to then pivot in an audience's imagination, um, to have them believe that I could write poems or that I could write serious nonfiction. Um, or that was my anxiety. Like I said, maybe that was all in my head. Maybe it was both. Uh, I wanted, I was also at the time getting really frustrated with what I kind of viewed uh, as the mere palatability of the food writing that I was reading. Um, I think this is a, this is a danger that food writing still suffers though. I think there's incredible um, complex food writing happening right now. Um, and what I mean by that is food writing that really just kind of um, sticks, I guess, might be pleasurable, might, um, you know, titillate the senses, but really just kind of ends with that. Um, what is that? Frances May's book, the the Venice, not the, the Italy book where she is um, remodeling her house. I can't think of the name right now. I've erased it from my brain. Because it drove me nuts. <laughs> and it drove me nuts. I mean, because I mean, the book was fun. It was a fun read. And then in the end, it's, you know, just about remodeling a house. And I was like, okay, so what? So what? Like, give me something deeper. Um, food is such a fraught subject. It's such an important point of connection between individuals and communities. But it also, is, you know, can be a really difficult, poisonous um, 
hard thing for individuals and communities. So how to contain, I wanted to figure out how to write something that would contain both of those elements because we live with both of those elements all the time. Formally, I thought that would be fun too. Like how to find an essay form that could contain, I guess, the, the sweetness of the subject, but also the poison of it. We're going to get along really well, and I'm going to ask you more about that in a little while and tell you a little bit about a project that I'm working on that I think think we're going to get together on pretty well. Uh, so the book is organized in 26 chapters, which is one for each letter of the alphabet. This is the second uh, alphabet book that I've interviewed someone about this year, so that's exciting for me. <laughs> and each of those is represented by one fruit. Um, and you've described it as a, a collection of essays, and I just heard you kind of describe them as essays here too. Uh, but the essays do, you know, they have that feeling of being on their own, but they also have kind of a narrative thread that runs throughout and some mysteries that don't get solved until you get further into the book. Uh, so take a minute and, and just describe what this book is. How do you think of it as, uh, as a unit or as a collection of units? Talk some more about that. Sure. You know, I um, wanted to write a book where you could start it at any point within the book, just like you would a cookbook, right? We don't usually go from beginning to end in cookbooks. And I thought it would be fun to mimic that through the, the structure of these essays. But I also wanted them to build on each other. Um, and one of the important ways that they build is through the some some narrative threads that I ended up weaving through. I didn't necessarily know that that was how it was going to be as I was, you know, pitching the book and writing the first five chapters. But I guess it became apparent to me as I was getting deeper and deeper into the book that in order for all the different um, types of knowledge that I was bringing together, all the different stories, all the leaps and associate associative leaps that I asked the reader to take to me, take with me, excuse me, in order for all those to hang together, um, I thought it became important uh, to have these um, narrative threats that they could trace from beginning to end. Um, and I think, you know, you can trace themes from essay to essay, but in terms of the narrative, usually there's just, you know, three or four essays that all share kind of one narrative. Um, so some of that was structural and some of that was also, how can I keep coming back to this subject now through a different fruit with different qualities that have different metaphorical possibilities and how will those possibilities allow me to understand, you know, this, this thorny relationship um, that's really important to me? They were all thorny relationships that became <laughs> the, uh, the, the narrative threads in the books. So, yeah, some, some, of the, some of the decision was practical, but a lot of it was, how do I, how do I understand this better? Yeah, I always have to ask, like, what's the hardest letter of the alphabet? Oh, X was hard. Yeah. <laughs> I hope by then that we're deep enough in the alphabet that the reader will forgive me that I'm not even close to talking about a fruit. <laughs> it was one of my favorites, actually. The xylitol chapter, I thought it had some of the best moments. One of my favorite lines of the whole book comes from that chapter about swapping medicines. Oh, Maybe so love is just exchanging medicines. We can talk about that some more. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. Okay, so uh, it also, the alphabetical this also kind of had that um, reference book for plant yes. identification oh, feeling. Yes, you talk about that. You feel it, right? So, and that came from, again, these books that I was finding at used bookstores that would go from A to Z with, you know, botanical recipes for drinks or, um, you know, uh, how to cook every vegetable on the planet. And they would always start 
that they would always go A to Z. And I, I loved the predictability of that. And then the, the variability within what I knew was, was coming next uh, was really fun to play with. I, it also became really important to me to be able to play with um, that reference book the, the genre elements of a reference book. So, so the encyclopedia is uh, is written as if it contains everything, and it's written, you know, with a narrative voice that is supposedly neutral. Um, it doesn't belong to any particular person, but of course it does, and of course it leaves things out and chooses to focus on particular things, um, and has a perspective. Um, and that it, it, toying with that was important to me. Um, because I wanted to call that element of reference books out. But then also for me as a writer, my anxiety was, of course, why did I choose, you know, Aronia instead of Apple? Or why did I choose um, uh, uh, a, a kiwi fruit instead of, uh, or no, no, why did I, let's see, I'm trying, <laughs> I can't remember my own words at this point, like what I wasn't supposed to choose. Anyway, like, why did I make the decisions that I made? Like they're arbitrary makes sense and and another person would have chosen a completely different fruit um and i also wanted a really good excuse um and a really good you know good way to paint my own excuse for and a way to show my limitations though my research is wide-ranging it is still limited by what was available what i had the imagination to find and what i had access to um you know on any given day um, and, and I guess as a writer, you know, I felt that anxiety of, of needing to capture absolutely everything about the fruit and being unable to do it. And also knowing I was probably here or there, maybe everywhere, um, participating in different echo chambers around each fruit that I, you know, that I would always encounter every time I did research into a fruit, I would find that, um, you know, four of my primary four of the secondary uh, resources I was using would all quote the same primary resource, for example. And I, it took me forever to realize that was happening. I don't know why, because I wasn't reading them next to each other. Um, but, you know, that happens on the internet, of course. But it, but to find that that was happening in, you know, published books, printed books that I was getting from, you know, Eastern Washington University's library, from WSU's library, uh, astounded me. And it was kind of comforting. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that it was comforting. (laughs) Well, that was sort of my next kind of question about that unique blending of the academic through the historical, through the botanical, uh, with the narrative that's personal and often painful. Uh, Again, most of the people I talk to on this podcast are very firmly rooted in the academic side of the house. Uh, And you have a sources and recommended reading appendix, which I appreciated. And I think readers uh, familiar with this podcast will see you citing sources like Sydney Mintz and feel kind of comfortable about that too. Uh, so maybe again, tell me a little bit more about that aspect of the book. Do you have that encyclopedic knowledge of fruit from some other place or, or what did your research really look like? I guess it, my stance, um, a stance that I value is that of an amateur. I'm an amateur. I'm a generalist. I'm a poet. Um, I, you know, I can, I can describe things well, and I can figure out how to relate them to each other, but I'm not an expert in any of the fields that I'm writing about, um, which meant that I could look far and wide for all the different ways and all the different fields within which these fruits, um, are described. Um, and I can also, I mean, often I would look for an unreliable source because I wanted to see the way the fruit was lied about 
or the way the fruit was mythologized or the way the fruits, I guess, or maybe the patterns of, of folklore around the fruit or folk, you know, ways of talking about the fruit. Wikipedia actually is a great source to get started with this. There's all sorts that's right and there's all sorts that's wrong on Wikipedia, <laughs> right? Um, and so I would sometimes go there um, just to get a sense of like, how do people talk about this, knowing that it might not be correct? Um, and then I would go, I, I am just finishing up a job uh, right now for uh, Washington State University's Health Sciences Library. So the whole time I was writing this book, not the whole time, excuse me, the last couple of years I was writing the book, um, I had access to WSU's library which was incredible. So then I would go into their search it online and just see what I could pull up, you know, everything from like the price of carrots in 1936 in Pullman to um, uh, uh, Chinese um, mythology around carrots. I didn't write about carrots, but I recently in this book, but I recently did. And those were things that came up, for example. And it just, I guess it got really interesting to me. I felt like my, my job besides keep making sure that I, interpreted these sources as correctly as I could um, was to figure out how to relate them to each other. Um, I wanted as an amateur, as a generalist to kind of enter each of these subjects saying, you know, we encounter and live with food in so many different ways with so many different, so many different types of experts are talking to us all the time about our food. We absorb that. We misinterpret that we enact it in our lives. It becomes, you know, part of the cycle. It becomes a lie. It becomes something we reject all that. Like how do I create a web from all this information and turn it into a, an essay? That's what, yeah, that was my research process. <laughs> <laughs> So difficult fruit, uh, you know, is like some of your other work where it does cross those genres between creative nonfiction and poetry and recipe. Um, so maybe do a little bit more of that comparison between a, like pie school and a common place of pie and difficult fruit. How do you kind of see them relating to each other? Sure. Well, I see difficult fruit as joining, you know, the two halves of my bifurcated creative life. I'm a writer. I'm a home cook. Um and for much of the last, you know, 20 years, I'm, I'm in my late 30s now, um, I think I had an anxiety that these two things were, were incompatible um, in a daily, you know, I have time for this and I have time for that sort of way. But then also in terms of um, my professional life, like, do, is there such thing as a writer cook? You know, <laughs> I suppose. But, you know, if you, if you work for the Food Network, yeah. They're, I think they're related in my sense of play. In my sense of in my desire to um, make a, a seemingly unserious subject serious, um, my interest in the way that um, sweetness attracts, um, but it also can obscure our expectations of it. We might assume that it is shallow, that it is easy, um, when underneath that there might be something that might be you know yeah, there's definitely something a lot more complex, um, and I mean that as an expectation that I have for books, but also as an expectation I was feeling for just put on myself by other people. Um, a commonplace book of pie arose from playing around when I was in grad school and just wanting to write something fun and kind of, I'd never expected it to become a book. Um, it was a zine first. Um, so it just, again, it came from this desire to just make something and share it with people um, people liked it. I ended up selling a thousand copies of these, this little handmade zine. 
um, and it became a book. Then Pie School came out of that because I, I um, developed a reputation around Seattle for being a good pie baker. And Sasquatch Books was looking for someone to write a pie cookbook. And they, they asked me if I'd do it. And I said, yes. I'd never considered doing it before. But, you know, you get an email like that from Gary Luke and you're like, okay, yeah, I like this cookbook. And I was hoping actually to write a, a, a subversive cookbook was in was my imagination. I wasn't going to write some sweet little book about pie. Um, and I told Gary that and he just smiled. He was like, okay, so let's see what you make. Um, I ended up as I was writing the book, the, the requirements of that genre, I think taught me what was really possible um, when writing a cookbook for me in that moment, I felt very responsible to the reader to write recipes that worked, to write recipes I could teach them how to do, how to do the thing that they had ostensibly opened the book to find out how to do, make a pie. Um, and that did actually put some limits on some of the subversion that I hoped to encode within that book. Um, I tried to get around that through including essays about pie and kind of talking about some of the personal stories that ended up in um, the book of difficult fruit, but I didn't go too, too deep there because really the subject of that cookbook was pie. It wasn't me. It was pie. Um, Yeah. And I wanted to honor that contract with the reader. So that left a whole lot of ambition and things I wanted to write about left over afterwards. Um, And as I was on tour for a commonplace book of pie, um, and then again, for high school, I would encounter things on the way, like an exhibit at the Mill City Museum in Minneapolis about the Washburn A. Mill explosion in 1878. I learned that flour is more um, combustible than gunpowder, and that when it would combine with um, sweat on the workers' arms, it would make dough. I mean, just the way that flour would start you know, commingling with somebody's body and could become this horrible, violent thing. Um, I suddenly realized I had a way to explain, you know, the, the disintegration of a relationship, an important relationship that I'd had with a man who had celiac disease, who kept wondering if I was trying to kill him by making pot, right? Um, another way that, that um, a diff- the diff- book of Difficult Fruit came out of these books um, was as I was trying to write commonplace book of pie, uh, my a fellow poet, Catherine Eulinson, I was sharing an office with her. She brought a sack of quince into our office and I had never seen them before. I'd never seen a quince before. And I did what I thought was expected of me. And I, I took this beautiful fruit and I tried to take a bite of it. And anyone who's done that before knows what a foolish thing that is to do because raw quince is incredibly hard and incredibly astringent and um, often incredibly sour. And that was such a shocking moment for me. I'd never been betrayed by a fruit before, right? And I'd never been betrayed kind of by my own expectations of fruit. I realized in that moment how circumscribed my idea of what fruit was, um, was. And, and it was really formed by what's available at the grocery store. And what's available at the grocery store is sweet. It can be um, shipped easily. It has arrived with all of its difficulty um, obscured, right? So, so that seemed like an opportunity to not only kind of expand um, my understanding of what is in the world and my palate, um, but to use these fruits possibly as uh, metaphors for other stories within my life. The um, quince might possibly be the biblical fruit of knowledge um, and how 
cool to have a beautiful fruit that smells amazing and tastes terrible. Be the fruit of knowledge, <laughs> right? Well, so the selfish question I wanted to ask you, and I thought it might be hard to answer, but hearing you talk, I think it's going to be easy for you. Uh, so I'm currently working on a project about painful subjects that might be raised in a cookbook and why the cookbook genre, with all of its conventions, makes it really hard to talk about oh, painful subjects. And it sounds like you know that from firsthand. Yeah. <laughs> so your essays really do that. They touch on all that personal pain, illness, death of loved ones, family secrets, betrayal, heartache, breakups, abortion. Uh, and you've written that traditional cookbook. So again, I wonder if you would you could talk a little bit more about how you, things that you maybe wanted to say in that cookbook, but that had to hold back and maybe how they come out in this book. Well, I wanted to talk about death and loss in that cookbook. I mean, that, uh, you know, those pie is sweet and, and puts people in a very good mood. It's also, you know, what you bring um, to a funeral lunch. It's also, you know, in my life was a substance that while it was, um, kind of giving me a sense of identity and, and power as a young woman, it was possibly sickening um, the man I loved who I lived with or becoming just a flashpoint between us um, that, that made us that, that I guess highlighted the ways that it was going to be impossible for us to continue. Um, and wait, what was the, what was the original part of the question? Like the things that you wanted to talk about in the cookbook that you felt like you couldn't because of the genre. I, I wanted to talk about I wanted to talk about those things directly. I wanted to tell you know those those stories in a way that wasn't you know merely heartwarming. Um, but again, I think the the I mean the, the cookbook is a, a teaching document. And there's a bunch of didactic language in a recipe. It needs to be bossy. It needs to be. Um, it needs to, to command the reader to do certain things. And it also it needs really the, the focus or my focus on the language of that book really needed to be about this balance between how do I describe um, this food enough so that people can make it, but not so much that it becomes impossible to get through the recipe while they're practically in their kitchen making the food. That was challenge enough, you know, the not too much, not too little-ness of it. And also just trying to put yourself in an amateur's shoes and imagine what, you know, what is it about the way that I make this food that's just in my muscles, that's just in my hands? Um, I, I don't know how to describe that part. How, how do I get outside of myself um, and find ways to communicate that to the reader? That was a wonderful challenge, actually. And, and felt, I think, because, um, I think, I think because of the type of, such a good question. I might be repeating myself at this point, but I just keep coming back to, I think because I kept thinking of pie school, my cookbook, I kept thinking of its primary function as one of teaching the reader. Um, and that those lessons actually needed to be fairly closed. They didn't open up at the end to let the reader, you know, figure out their own interpretation or, you know, see how they feel about it. It was no, like put it in the oven take it out at a certain time, cool it for this amount of time. Do not put ice cream on top of it. You know, like, <laughs> very, very, I'm trying to say, yeah, kind of strict didactic language was, was important for making an effective cookbook. And that did not make for, that did not leave a lot of room for the type of, of essay writing that I wanted to do. 
or the personal writing that I wanted to do. I wonder what how another writer would answer that question, though. How do you answer that? Why was it hard to include this stuff in a traditional cookbook? It goes to exactly what you said a moment ago about having a contract with the reader. I thought it was so interesting that you said that very word, because that's the very word that I have been using to describe it, too, that there's a kind of a genre deep agreement that you as the writer are going to provide something that points towards pleasure and the reader is going to you know, receive it and end up with pleasure. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to inject within that narrative anything that's going to alienate the reader from their own experience of pleasure. Do you, does that sound right from your experience oh. as a writer? Yes. And it makes me think about the ways as a, as a recipe reader, if I'm not interested, I just put the cookbook down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> way faster than if I am not interested in a part of a book. I will muddle mm. through and knowing that, you know, within a literary book, something might be uh, developing that I just can't see yet. Where in a cookbook, yeah, if I encounter too much friction, I'll put it down and I'll go get another cookbook. And some of that is like, it's Tuesday night, I got to figure out what to cook. There are um, completely different conditions that I approach that type of book in that I do, you know, a book I sit down and I read because it's a book. Of yes. Reading. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear you say that it feels that way as a writer too, that as a writer of a cookbook, you might also be arriving with a different set of um, expectations for what your reader needs. Yes. Okay. Well, let me ask you one more question about the recipes and then we'll take a break. Um, are, is the writing of these recipes different from the writing of the recipes in pie school? Yes. Oh gosh. This, it was so fun to write these recipes in part because, you know, the conceit of the book is that these are difficult fruits. That meant that I didn't have to make these, um, ingredients or these methods as accessible as mm. I needed. I felt I needed to do with pie school. Um, and that's not to say I wanted to obfuscate them, just that that it's really fun to go ask the reader to go get something um, rare um, or something that they've never heard of and be like, and there are no substitutions. If you cannot find, you know, such and such fruit, just move on to the next recipe. Just imagine <laughs> what this might, might be like sort of thing. That was fun. Um, the other thing that was fun was um, I, I didn't feel like I needed to, I was relieved of needing to explain a food form. So pie school is a one subject cookbook. It was really important. For, I spent, you know, two, the first two uh, fifths of the book, just explaining how to make pie crust, how to think about pie as a food form. What are the traditions that are, you know, are coming from it. And then we get into the recipes, which are basically all, you know, um, variations of each other. Um, and, and I love that about pie is that it's actually a really basic form and that you can understand crust and you can understand filling and it's a container and something that it contains and that's it, you know, uh, where in Book of Difficult Fruit, it was an opportunity to cycle through lots of different food forms and instead show like how are all the different ways, um, what are different recipes that will call for fruit? What are the different ways we interact with fruit in the kitchen or at the pharmacy or you know, when we're making um, cosmetics, stuff like that. So yeah, these recipes were, and these recipes were also became a way to show or remind the reader of all the non-food applications there are for fruit. Um, I thought of them as illustrations, mm. you know, and, and though you can, um, I think that you could take all the recipes out and the book of difficult fruit would still be whole. Um, I, if I did that, I would have lost the opportunity that the head note offered me 
within this book, which was, I, I realized as I started writing more and more of these that the head note is like the B side, or it's like this um, extra little, uh, uh, what's, what's a good word for it? It was, each of them was an opportunity to either include information that didn't fit in the previous um, essay because of, you know, whatever theme I got obsessed about just didn't, you know, permit this tidbit that I thought was interesting. Um, it was also an opportunity to jump forward or backward in time in a way that the reader would accept um, and that felt good. Um, it was another opportunity to um, introduce characters um, that didn't fit in other parts of the essay. And it was, or it was a, it was a way to comment on the essay that came before. So in some ways they were like extended footnotes. Um, that was fun. It was just really fun. It does sound super fun. <laughs> One of the threads that runs through the book is that slipperiness of food as poison and as medicine, uh, starting right at the beginning with aronia uh, with bitter almonds and the cyanide and cherry pits, elderberry, um, perhaps hitting its peak with juniper, maybe wheat. We'll talk about both of those in a minute. But after meditating on this question for the length of the book, what do you think you've learned about this uneasy relationship of food, poison, and medicine? Well, I think I have to start with with what drew me to that slipperiness or that relationship. And I, I think it really comes from, I, mean, I was raised by... Um, a mom who had a lot of chronic pain. She suffered from migraines. And one of the main ways that she, or at least one of the main ways I saw her try to heal herself throughout my life um, was food, was a bunch of different, you know, ever-changing healthy diets that would work for a while and then would stop working. Um, and so that taught me in a way that I can, can alter, but I can't ever unlearn the sense that that food will heal me, um, even though, you know, by my observation, I know that it won't. Um, and I know that um, it can also, that can also become, you know, an orthorexia that in, in effect becomes unhealthy, not literally poisonous, but like a kind of poison. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm steeped in that as a, as a primary way that I understand my relationship with food. Um, I also just really wanted to understand the, the kind of wordless way that I was attracted to food, um, fruit in particular, but food, food in general, um, why I would view, um, not view, just why I had this feeling that being in, in the company of food, making food, giving food, um, was, I mean, I, yeah, again, it's wordless. I mean, the, the obvious things are it's a point of connection. It's a, you know, it's a way of nurturing. It's love, all these things. But it's something else. It's like a kind of craving. Um, I would get super excited about buying 40 pounds of rhubarb so that I could use it all up and buy more. I don't know why, but that's, that's my thing. Um, and so one of the opportunities that this book offered, because I was using foods as metaphors was to think about the other ways that we, that we, you know, or what or was to think about the metaphors we use to identify what will make us well, what foods will make us well. Um, the magical thinking, if you will, um, that we have around, around food. Um, and as I did more research into, you know, the doctrine of signatures, um, into historical uses of fruits. Um, I mean, what I found was often, this kind of, 
what did I find? <laughs> Some of this question is really hard for me to answer because it just seems so obvious that I still have a hard time right. talking about it. I can write about it, but it's really hard to talk about it. It just, it just feels like that relationship is there and that that's something that I can um, gesture at you know, through associations and through metaphors within the book. But actually when I try to sit down and give you, you know, some good vocabulary for why these things, this, it is true that poison and, and food are related. Um, I just, I get tripped up. You know, one of the, I guess maybe one of the um, terms that was useful to me was this idea of like a narrow um, therapeutic index. That was a, a term given to me by my next door neighbor, who's a doctor. Um, you know, and that just means there's a very narrow window within something within which something that helps you can then start to poison you into mm. if you if you use too much of it. And I love the um, I love the reminder that these qualities are inseparable. You know that, or, or just the reminder that something that um, brings us comfort the very same thing without, you know, changing anything about it, um, except for the quantity or the, the way that it's being served. Um, it can become, it can become poison. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about the juniper chapter, which, yeah. which seems to me to be the, the, the climax of this thread, especially mm-hmm. of, of medicine and that relationship between juniper and abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe talk about that chapter and how it might've challenged your thinking about food and medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, I never really thought about juniper as food. Oh, well, yeah. Okay. I know it's spice, right? But I never really, even after writing about it, I think because most of the ways that um, one encounters it is as a flavor, not necessarily as something that um, is the body of whatever it is you're eating or drinking. Um, And so maybe that made it especially not surprising that it would be used as a medicine, that you were, we were in some ways trying to, to, steep off um, the active ingredient of juniper to, you know, in these, in the cases of some unfortunate women in history um, to cause an abortion. Um, But yeah, that actually, yeah. And that's a great example of, um, of, that's a great example of a food or of a spice that can be used at different um, moments within um, you know, someone's condition to produce dramatically different results. So juniper, you know, when, when given to a pregnant woman, um, might cause abortion, um, or spontaneous abortion of the fetus, um, given to a woman in labor might help her deliver that baby. So the opposite, um, ending, um, could happen. This is, it's, I've, I still don't have good language for this. This is a great question, but I really don't. I really don't. I think that um, the book became a space that I can enter where I figured out how to talk about it. And mm-hmm. still outside the book, I just, I don't know. <laughs> well, I think the Huckleberry chapter too makes another connection between medicine um, and another thread of the book, which is the sort of inescapable acknowledgement of colonialism. Yeah. Um, anyone who, you know, I read and write about Southern food, and it seems very clear to me that you cannot talk about the history of the United States uh, and food without eventually having to address the fact that indigenous people and indigenous knowledge uh, have been kind of erased from that history or obfuscated in that history. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the Huckleberry chapter in particular, you bring up that 
that interesting dichotomy of forage fruits being free and having that kind of smell of authenticity, but also expensive and easily commodified into something cheap as well. Um, so maybe talk a little bit more about that chapter and the, the ideas that came up for you when writing about huckleberries. Right. That was Huckleberry was such an opportunity to try to contain, contain all the contradictions of a food. Um, so huckleberries are, are sacred to the native tribes here. They're a really important part of their foodways and their traditions. Um, they're also beloved by the um, descendants of colonizers, by newer transplants like myself. Everybody loves them. But also because I knew that if I really wanted to get dig down deep into any um, fruit that was you know native to this country, I was going to get stories um, about and need to figure out how to write um, about um, indigenous practices in a way that was you know okay. I'm a white woman. Um, I'm yeah the descendant of colonizers, and um, my people were part of the erasure of native languages of native traditions. Um, and the uh, murder of Native people. So um, how do I write, or how do I uh, acknowledge that, um, you know, while also writing about the really cool things about this fruit? Um, in some ways, this is kind of like the, the what you were talking about earlier with cookbooks, um, where I didn't, I guess I didn't want to go so far in my writing about um, kind of my role as a, as a colonizer, I guess, so far into that, that it became, um, kind of self-lacerating, um, because I didn't feel, um, I guess I just didn't feel, uh, like a useful way to talk about the fruit. It was a way that it would be just become about my guilt. How boring, <laughs> right? <laughs> How boring. <laughs> so, um, Huckleberry was this great opportunity to um, go talk to um, Lorraine Wiley, for example. She's you know one of the founders of the Salish School of Spokane. That's um, the only um, native language school that's in an urban area in the United States, as far as I know. Of. So really, really special, cool um, immersion Salish language school for grades K through 12. Um, and she uh, taught me the words for Huckleberry. She told me about traditions and the way that um, they work with the kids um, around foods and getting to bring that story um, and kind of weave it into, you know, my own, into um, the story of um, oh God, missing words, just the, the missionaries. <laughs> into the story of like missionaries coming through the Pacific Northwest and complaining about, you know, natives, um, their native converts losing their good habits while they're off in the huckleberry fields. Um, it was just, it was cool. And it was a cool, um, perhaps what was most important about this opportunity for me was like how to, you know, write an essay within a form that could contain all of these contradictions and say, all of these things are true about this fruit. I can't solve you know, the violence and I, and I can't, um, like I can't necessarily even come to a particular conclusion about how we should feel about this fruit or how we should, or how I should feel about, you know, my, um, uh, what's, um, culpability. Mm -hmm. Um, but that I, as a writer, 
could just present what is true about this fruit and let the reader come to their own conclusions and let the reader um, really experience a fruit in all the the different ways that it is. Mm -hmm. That was my, that was my hope for that chapter. There's again the, that thread of, of potential poison. There's the the return of cyanide in the the pits of most of our fruits. These bitter almonds. Uh, the wheat chapter is the one that I think describes that poison the most. And you've you've brought it up a couple of times too, mm-hmm. um, describing the end of a relationship, the way that food can be healing for one po- person and poison to the other. Um, lots of meditation on poison and what does it mean to poison a person? Uh, talk about that essay and, and what maybe it brings to this question of food uh, as poison. Well, I think one of the things I was struggling with in that essay was trying to understand how um, if I thought I was doing such a good job taking care of my man and taking care of my relationship, you know, why did I feel like I was being buried alive? Um, why did it end? Um, how does nurturing um, actually become a substitute for conflict, for necessary conflict? Um, how does nurturing become a substitute for, um, you know, making hard decisions about my life? Um, and, you know, the way in that chapter I primarily talk about nurturing is through, you know, making pie. Um, and, and cooking and um, the irony of being someone who is, you know, getting obsessed with pies, using pie and wheat, other wheat based foods to um, kind of, you know, make the rent in between years of grad school, which is what I was doing at the time, um, uh, while living with a man who I loved who had celiac disease, who was getting, you know, sicker and sicker, um, who I was quite possibly contributing to his sickness. Um also, the way that that the way that we understood the disease at the time um, had this kind of escalating sense of um, needing to contain his food so they would not make him sick. But no matter how we contain them, um, what I remember anyway was that it just nothing nothing seemed to work. And so the question that would then became: Can we can contain it further? Can we get things to be more pure, more healthy? Um, which yeah. <laughs> yeah, it feels exhausting just to listen to it and to read about it. Know, right? <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, so then suddenly thinking, like realizing, or thinking about my own clouds of wheat flour and um, the, you know, historical clouds of, of wheat flour that set off this explosion at the Washburn A mill, I think just provided me with an opportunity to start to understand um, how perhaps the ways that I was kind of knee jerk nurturing um, were not helpful to myself or to my partner. Um, And maybe there could be another way for me to take care of the people I love and take care of myself without this kind of like smothering nurturing that I I thought I was, I was participating in. I was not participating in, I was doing um, whether he wanted it or not. Um, okay, now I've lost the question again. What's the question? I think that's a good transition too, because <laughs> again, what I really appreciate about this book is is just how it explodes that elementary understanding of food as something that always nourishes, mm-hmm. or food that always brings people together. Uh, and certainly, you have lots of chapters that talk about 
that or the opposite of that. But there are some like kiwi, uh, yuzu, zucchini that that do return to those heartwarming moments that we kind of expect. Uh, they are nice as a reader to, to come back to those moments where feeding and food really seem to be those metaphors for care and nurturing. And, and you still talk about those complications. They're not without complications. Um, but maybe return to that question about um, what is looking at the difficulty of food offer us as readers and listeners in relationship with that, excuse me, that view of food as nourishing or caring or caregiving? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it just, it offers a more authentic relationship with food a more authentic relationship or more authentic um, story about how we actually eat and share and make food. You know, it's, it's, I think the story that's often told us in cookbooks, perhaps because they have to, because their contract with the reader is a promise of pleasure is that, you know, eating, cooking and sharing food is going to be pleasurable. And it is that, but it's also so much more complicated than that. And I think to, um, I never want to rest merely on the positive and nurturing and sweet aspects of any, any kind of food. I know that any writing I read about that, any writing I do like that is, is a lie um, to at least a certain extent that there's um, so engaging in difficulty. I mean, engaging in difficulty is also about like finding the conflict and finding the conflict makes for good reading. And good writing, right? <laughs> we need that conflict. But um, but being able to yeah, to engage in thornier aspects of supposedly sweet subjects just I think allows the reader, allows the writer, allows the eater, allows the cook a more a closer and more authentic relationship with, with food. Well and now well, the two cruel say that. <laughs> that is How many times did I say that? <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, the different ways of, of wording it always leads to slightly more, you know, information, right? More, <laughs> more revelation. Uh, the cruelest questions of this podcast. One is, which are your favorite essays and recipes? You know, I love my lump essay. That was about Yes, and we didn't get to talk about it yet, but yeah. it's the one that's not really about fruit at all, right? Wow. It's, I mean, it's most clearly about fruit as a metaphor. I'm thinking about, I, in, in the... This is a chapter where I'm talking about um, a breast cancer scare that I had and um, the way that we describe uh, possible, you know, tumors in terms of their, of, of, sorry, we describe the size of both. <laughs> um, <laughs> Jesus, sorry. Tumors and fetuses. Tumors and fetuses. Tumors and fetuses um, in terms of, you know, how, how they compare to, you know, a certain size of fruit. Um and I loved, it also describes a, a really um, important but thorny relationship that I had um, and the kind of both guilt and um, freedom that I felt with, with ending that relationship. And I think I love that chapter uh, because it really helped me come to terms with, um, I guess, the necessity of ending things sometimes even if you feel like an asshole. Um, How about a favorite recipe? Favorite recipe. I still come back to bandolin, which is a name for the gel that comes off of quince seeds. So if you take the seeds of a quince and immerse them in water and then just 
forget about them for an afternoon, come back, they'll be surrounded by this gel that they've exuded. And you can use that um, as a pomade for your hair. People used to use it in the 1800s for their hair. Uh, but you can also dissolve it in tea and it will soothe your sore throat. Fascinating. I would not put any of my hair products in my throat. <laughs> uh, second cruelest question. What other projects are you working on next? You've oh, just finished this book. What's next? I have to decide. There's two different ones that I'm thinking about. And I guess we'll, we'll just see kind of which one um, I figure my way into first. But one is called The Loud Proof Room. It is based on an essay that I wrote um, about seven years ago that was published in Best American Essays, also called The Loud Proof Room. And it's about listening through hearing loss. So I'm trying to figure out, um, I guess, the ways my own um, disability, can, I, the way that I can think about it as a sensibility. Um, I don't know what that looks like in terms of what I would end up writing about, um, but I'm trying <laughs> to figure that out right now. So that's an idea. The other idea is I really want to do a book with my cheese mentor, Laura Lee Misterly of Glossaskit Farm. You know, one of the opportunities that I had through this apprenticeship program that we did with the Washington Center for Cultural Traditions was um, I just got to follow her around the kitchen. And I'm really, really interested in the ways that um, her cheesemaking practice is just encoded in her gestures, not just in her place, but in kind of what's available in her place, her, the, the equipment that she's jerry-rigged and bought over 40 years of making cheese. Um, the, you know, ways that over time, um, as her life changes, as she gets older, her cheese changes just for all these tiny different reasons that you would never be able to encapsulate in a recipe. I think the way that she makes cheese um, feels like it is impossible to write down. So I am excited to try. <laughs> Those are both wonderful projects and I will be looking for them both. Uh, today we've been talking to Kate Lebo about her newest book, The Book of Difficult Fruit, Arguments for the Tart, Tender, and Unruly with Recipes, published in 2021 by Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Kate, thanks so much for being here. I feel like I've made a new friend today. <laughs> Me too. I can't wait for your book. It sounds fascinating. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Mm -hmm.